So this is also the experience of women oftentimes in midlife, right? That they often, there is this sense of social alienation, a sense of who am I in this world? You know, there is this kind of, almost like it's a foreclosure of identity. Embodied within this archetype is women and older people because they remind us of our own mortality. And yet the sacredness of this time is that we are coming to terms with mortality, right? And I think that it's so tempting for a lot of folks to buy into not just the medicalization, but this mass marketing to us that something is wrong with us and this overpriced product is going to fix it, you know? Yeah, I always call the um, symptoms of menopause challenges because a symptom is often a disease thing. A challenge is a call to special effort. And I feel that all of the symptomology that I had was calling me to say, what aspect of your trauma is this trying to tell you? What aspect of your trauma is that trying to tell you? So for me, they were all challenges calling me to make an effort to do the work of my healing. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with three incredible friends and colleagues. The first is Leah Harris, who's an activist and independent journalist whose work examines mental health and disability policy. Linda Visto, a childhood trauma survivor and holistic healing advocate who wrote the memoir, Menopause in Crisis, When Spiritual Emergency Meets the Feminine Midlife Passage. And Marie Brown, who's a licensed clinical psychologist, writer, and president of the U.S. chapter of the International Society for the Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis. I'm abbreviating here because they have all done so, so much in this field. And today, of course, we'll be talking about the experiences of perimenopause, menopause, and psychosis, something that is so under-researched and not talked about. We will discuss taking a transformative lens to these experiences, this crucial time of midlife, how the system fails people, and what we can do differently. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here. So let's dive in. Marie, Leah, and Linda, welcome to the Depthwork Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to always talk about holistic mind-body approaches to mental health issues and various life crises. Heck yeah. And this topic in particular, I think, I mean, I almost never hear about this, even in circles where we talk quite a bit about psychosis or manifestations of trauma or even holistic health, hormone health, like there's such a gap. So you all are filling this need. I wanted to really start out with this topic by hearing from each of you just a bit about what really drew you to this and maybe some of your lived experiences as well, which I think will likely be quite relatable and powerful for a lot of folks listening. So who would like to start? I'm happy to start. 
So, yeah, I'm, again, so appreciative of this opportunity to talk about a very under-researched and, as you said, very undiscussed topic. And I will be perfectly honest, until I hit perimenopause myself, this was not an object of focus for me, but I've always had a critical lens on mental health, on how we understand it, how we quote unquote treat it. Um, I've always been interested in uh, topics around psychosis and spiritual emergence, but I myself um, had not had these experiences until I hit menopause. And uh, I feel like menopause was uh, like a bomb dropped in my life. And there were many and are many beautiful things that have emerged from it and are continuing to emerge from it. But um, I was completely unprepared for this bomb. Um, I don't know if I ever could have adequately prepared for it, but um, I had no awareness of the, you know, for example, you know, the idea that, you know, people who've experienced trauma and I'm a trauma survivor, can have much more intense experiences as they approach perimenopause and go through the menopausal transition. I had no idea of the differential impacts on queer people, on people of color, all of these different nuances. All I knew was that when around the age of 44, I felt like I no longer knew who I was any longer. And, you know, I'll just share a bit of a capsule of my own story. It really, there was a progression that I can now look back and see four years later, but it started with being unable to sleep. And that went on for a very, very long time where I was not sleeping. And that started to result in cognitive effects for me. And I make my living from words, from speaking, from writing, from being up in front of people and saying things. And, and I found I was losing words. I couldn't complete a thought. I could not concentrate at work. It literally got to the point where I was unable to do my job. And that is terrifying. I'm a single parent in a society with no safety net. And so that added stress and trauma on top of the what I was already experiencing, which was so deeply disorienting and disconcerting. And I did have to go on an unpaid medical leave and eventually leave my very stable, very comfortable job. And I realize it's immense privilege to be able to do that. And so many menopausal people do not have that privilege, but I just was unable to continue to work and it was terrifying. And that, that all happened right before the pandemic. And then with the stress of the pandemic, I was doing some freelance journalism, reporting on some very traumatic things, people in psychiatric hospitals dying in the pandemic, very, very difficult work. And everything that happened leading up to the summer of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings for racial justice, I was deeply, you know, invested in all of that. And what really ended up happening is I went into a complete and total altered state of consciousness that calls that is called psychosis. And it had never happened to me before. You know, I had I was 45 years old by that point. And my entire world kind of shifted on its axis. And it what I did experience tremendous spiritual opening during that time, but it was also terrifying 
because I'm navigating these experiences in the midst of a global pandemic as an unemployed, largely unemployed single parent. And, and I had no frame of reference for what I was going through. And I, we can talk more about what helped, you know, I'll just kind of share maybe up until this point and give Linda a chance to, to speak about her own experience. But it's only because I've been a psychiatric survivor activist for at that point, it had been over 20 years, and I was very aware of the Hearing Voices Network, of other movements that have been started by people with psychosis, that I was able to get through that without being forcibly hospitalized. But it was a very, very, very destabilizing experience. And it was only after that that I put my researcher hat, you know, once the intensity had passed, I put my researcher hat on and really began digging into this and the woeful, woeful state of understanding when it comes to what particularly my focus is on trauma survivors, what trauma survivors go through during the perimenopause and the menopause transition. So I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, actually, before we move on, I'd love to hear just a tiny bit, and I know each of you will probably be able to speak to this as well. I think that link is something that we don't talk about often enough, but it's so clear to me in the research too, the links between trauma and the manifestation of trauma that gets labeled as psychosis and also trauma and how that re-emerges or manifests later on in life or with hormonal changes. Both, you know, I think it's said that there's two windows of time when it's kind of common for people to experience psychosis, both kind of early, I think it's like early 20s and then later again during perimenopause or menopause. I'm just curious if you can speak a tiny bit just about that trauma piece and how you've come to kind of story it for yourself around trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll just share when I was going through this, I was lucky to have a very understanding therapist. And I'll never forget what she said to me during one session. She said, yeah, I have all of these midlife women and people who are trauma survivors and have like held it together for their whole lives and then fall apart in perimenopause, right? But she didn't really have a satisfactory explanation as to why that is, right? So of course, with all things, it's such a complex uh, interplay between uh, psychosocial factors, which would love to hear Marie talk more about that as well. And, and our biology, right? We are biological beings. There's no denying that. And my understanding as someone who's researched trauma for some time is that trauma, and particularly I want to highlight here early trauma, um, although a lot of survivors of early trauma also have lifetime trauma, right? But, but early trauma changes the brain architecture. It changes our physiology. It changes our immune system. There's no system in the body that remains unchanged. So what you see, there's a phenomenon to where in puberty, trauma survivors might have a much rockier time during that transition, right? Also in the postpartum period. And I knew about all of that. I was prepared, or I knew about the postpartum period when I had my son, I was prepared, you know, with supports if anything was to happen after his birth. And I did have many challenges, but I had truly no idea, number one, about trauma and menopause. I had never heard a word about it. As a mental health advocate, I'm ashamed of that now, um, but I'm trying to rectify it. And I, I'd never really understood that there was a second peak of psychosis, altered states, 
that occurs during the menopausal transition. Never once in any hearing voices conversation and anything that I'd ever listened to or been connected with had that been brought up, right? So, and all of our resources, it's really hard for me not to get on a soapbox here, but all of our resources are dedicated towards early psychosis. And, and that's extremely important. I'm not at all saying it's not, but, but there's almost none that are dedicated to this second peak, which is much more common than, than anyone understands. I actually went to all of the early psychosis centers, you know, the heads of all of those networks in the United States and asked if there are any programs catering specifically to people in the menopausal transition. And they all un- unilaterally said none. I mean, that certainly speaks to kind of societally how we discard elders. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that and for being willing to, once you kind of stepped out a bit of that experience to then go back and share this with other people, do that research. I mean, thank you. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Linda, I'd love to hear a bit from you and your story. Yeah. My experience, um, like, like Leah says, I was not prepared. And though, as I think back, I had a boyfriend in high school who came to see me afterwards and was telling me about his mom when she went through menopause. She was a psychiatric hospital nurse and she committed herself during her menopause. So uh, I'm guessing I had that probably somewhere in the back of my mind, but I was a uh, corporate accountant and a nonprofit accountant and, you know, very anchored in the this kind of society that my spiritual emergency experience was very contrary to. So I think like Leia, not sleeping was a big part of it. But for me, um, I wrote a memoir about my experience, hoping to help other women. And it starts off, I, I had started having night sweats. So, and I thought this was fabulous. I thought, wow, this is going to be really cool. I'm going to go through menopause. This is something special, I thought. Then I woke up one night, it was mid-July, and I was shaking so badly, I couldn't hold a glass of water, and my heart was pounding. I, I had never experienced anything like this before. I called 911 in the middle of the night, and I talked to the dispatcher for a few minutes, decided not to have the ambulance come in to just try to settle down and get some sleep. Next morning, I said, because I'm a consummate researcher. I will look up anything if something seems out of the ordinary. So I typed in night panic and perimenopause. Never thought anything would come up. Dozens of websites came up. Dozens. And one where all these other women were talking about their experiences with middle of the night panic, medications they needed to take to get through the night, and their trips to the emergency room. So I said, it's perimenopause. I had terrible PMS. I can do this. I'm going to be fine. Not so. (laughs) Not so. Within the next few days, pulse is up to like 100. My blood pressure is through the roof. Shaking, shaking, shaking. Constant shaking. Never stopped. Not sleeping, not eating. Couldn't sleep, couldn't think. So I started going to the doctor over and over again. I'm going to the doctor. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Nobody could give me anything. I'm going to go back on that. My my one doctor that I'd had for many years, a woman nurse practitioner, did say to me, you have lots of baggage 
lots of emotional baggage and and she left it there. And I was very aware. I was very aware that I had a lot of childhood abuse and I had been in therapy for that a few times, but I was waiting till my sons got out of high school so that I knew it was going to be a big job. So I was trying to focus on my sons, but my hormones said, you're going to go down now, woman, you're going down now. So it was doctor, 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 ER visit. ER visit. An ambulance came one night. My sons are terrified. My ex-husband traveled all the time. So it was just me and them. And I, with no one being able to tell me what was going on, I went online, did my own research, concluded I was dying, that I had this disease and I was dying. I told my sons I was dying. I told my husband I was dying. I told the teachers and guidance counselors at my son's school that I was dying. I was so convinced of this. I uh, went to a neighbor, asked her to tell everyone she knew that I had lost my mind in case I started running around town naked. So then there, it was trips to Westchester. I live in upstate New York. It was trips to, trips to Westchester, just trying to figure out what this was. My ex-husband's father had committed suicide. And when I started talking about suicide, he figured that was that. I went to a neurologist told him my symptoms. First thing that the man asked me was, were you ever molested? And I said, yay, I'm not going to die. This is all happening just because I was molested. And I figured I could handle that because I've been handling that all my life. So then he, he said he'd run an EEG to show me everything was normal. It wasn't normal. I had extreme slowing brain waves, extreme. He was flabbergasted. He was watching the screen going, oh my God, look at that look at that. So I was like, okay, I'm dying. So I was stuck in the dying thing. Fast forward again. I'm in the psychiatric hospital sitting outside with another woman. She's telling me how she was molested as a child. She tells me about another woman on our ward who was molested and needed to go to long-term care because things weren't coming around. They put me in a trauma group and I'm going, what kind of trauma have I ever had? I thought it was about wars and car accidents and plane crashes. And then the women in the group are talking about being molested. And I said, wait a freaking minute. Are these people in this group and in this hospital because they were molested? Am I in this hospital because I was molested? That to me was the, the biggest eye opener, really, of the experience. I mean, and then the healing was huge, too. And I had read about the second peak for schizophrenia in women. So I said, oh. I have schizophrenia, then told my sons I'm going to live in a group home because I'm still not well enough to come home. Through my whole experience, I was never able to cry and cry. I'm a crier, Hallmark card commercial, Snoopy's Christmas. I'm crying. Then one day I was reading something from my journal to my hospital therapist and I started to cry. And in that tiny moment, I said, I I'm going to do this. I'm going to be okay. I just knew that it was about that. It was about release. It was about stuff I needed to get out. So they they said they were sending me home. I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to keep saying to my sons, I'm dying. I'm dying right now. But they sent me home. My ex-husband had been seeing a therapist and we went as a couple a few times. And it was a mind-body psychologist. So he was the perfect, it, I couldn't have looked for a better therapist. I didn't have the mind to even look. But I started going to him and the journal, 
dreams, very huge part of the healing, the journal and dreams. I've been journaling for years, already writing about my dreams. Through the dreams, I'm remembering aspects of my abuse. I would relate this information to my therapist. I would cry and shake so badly. My teeth, I'd be like this. He thought I was going to have a seizure, but he lived in a Buddhist monastery. He was so in tune with these things. I, I think other therapists might've put me back in the hospital, would have put me on more medications. I was on four medications when I came out and bioidentical hormones. I was doing everything because I had to get back to being a mother to my sons. So I was aware every time I went to therapy and had one of those releases that I felt this much more sane. You know, it took, it took months, years, really. I was in therapy for four and a half years, but every one of those experiences was a layer of bringing me back down to earth. And through that, uh, I was a yoga teacher and just something, and, and my therapist did say, you know, you have very good instincts with this. I think I started massage therapy right off the bat because I knew there was a body thing with release and I would go to massage and I would cry. Everything for me was like, I, I got to get this out. It was like wringing a washcloth and I wanted to get as much of this out of me as I could. So it was the massage therapy. I went to a hypnotherapist just for relaxation things, not to get memories. Continuum movement was extraordinary. I was doing yoga every day, continuum because it involves authentic movement, following your body's own wisdom and sounding was tremendous. I joined a support group for incest survivors. That was tremendous. My spiritual practices, tarot readings, I got very involved with the tarot cards. Music was extraordinary. When I was in the hospital, my uh, my ex-husband and my sons brought my guitar up for me. Of course, they put that away because they don't let you have that in the psychiatric hospital. But the um, night before I was leaving, they took the guitar out and I played a song by Don McLean. One of the nurses hooked onto this. The morning I was leaving, she brought in a tape player and Gordon Lightfoot, Don McLean, from my generation, you people wouldn't know this, I'm 65. And I, I put the tapes on. I was, I was just terrified to go home. I was not, I didn't, hadn't slept the whole night. So I put these tapes on and I could hear me start to cry here. I could hear me in the music. And I was, I was like trying to reattach to me. And I, and that was another thing that I went, okay, I'm there. That was the thing I cried. I was like, I'm still in there. And the music, I was still in there. And then, too, on my computer, after I came home, I'm very bad with hardware on computer. I just hit something. And there was a Jim Brickman piano tape in there. And I went, oh, my God. Again, I was like, I'm there. I am in there. It's just peeling away these layers to get back to me. And it was very organic process that I did all of these mind-body things. Very fortunate that I had that therapist. It wasn't until a good few years later, I'll say like two and a half, maybe three years later, I was doing really well. I went off this, all the psychotropic meds, was off the hormones. And I told the hypnotherapist about all my symptoms and the hospital, all that. And he said, that sounds like a spiritual emergency to me. And I was like, what? What are, you, what are you talking about? He's like, haven't you read Roth's work? He's like, no, apparently I, I haven't. I don't know what you're talking about. Got several of his books. I forgot which one this was about spiritual emergency. 
And I start reading possession states, alien connection stuff. I was like, this isn't me. This isn't the thing. Then I got to Kundalini crisis. And I was like, holy Toledo, this is it. It had, because the Kundalini experience is so physical, the blood pressure, the pulse, the shaking, the whistling sounds. I had all of this going on. All right. So I'm like, okay, what's the spiritual emergency? This is fabulous. Then I started, I had um, the Wisdom of Menopause by Dr. Christiane Northrup. Everybody, every woman going through menopause who's having a difficult time should read this book. She talks about how the hormones set us up for this midlife healing. How, and I'm, I'm just going to be a quick thing. I think this is from her. I'm not sure. It's from one of these women's health experts. Think of it as a lake, nice, placid, calm lake, and the water is all our hormones. It's our estrogen, our progesterone. Everything looks good. We'll go back to PMS. So PMS, those hormones kind of subside, and you look and see at the bottom of that lake are all these old refrigerators, dishwashers, tires, all the junk, all the trauma of your life is sitting there. But the hormones, oh, look at that. Everything's okay. Then menopause comes. And I had perimenopause was so bad for me. I was suicidal early on and stuff. It was so bad. I got it to a really good point with diet and progesterone cream. So I was like, I got this. No more PMS. This is great. Then menopause goes, watch this. Watch this. And Dr. Northrup calls it the mother of all wake up calls because then those hormones, that water, that's not coming back every month anymore. Uh oh, then you've got to deal with that stuff. And she says twice in there, and that, that was like my motto she says, grow or die. And that was really a crossroad that I had come to. I had to, I didn't want to yet work on the trauma of my past, but I had no choice. And I, I do think that our psyches, you know, we can go all into the subconscious. We'll do that very quick. Of course, all the, the trauma stuff, because we know that our bodies are just energy. Yes. You know, protons, neutrons, electrons, it's all energy. When every thought we have, every experience creates a chemical reaction, energetic stuff and energies are released and et cetera, et cetera. So that stuff is buried in the subconscious. And when we then the menopause comes and all of that, all of that hormones and stuff is gone. All of that stuff is in there. All of that energy, because we have fight, flight, or freeze, and we have frozen these energies into ourselves. Emotions are energy. I have, I'm doing a workshop in a few months. I have a whole diagram of this. Emotions are energy that need to be in motion. They need to move us and move through us. Because if we're holding on to that, reading this great book, Childhood Dis Disrupted right now, because it will create physical things as well as the psychosis, all kinds of physical things, because that energy is so stuffed down. So, and that for me is the spiritual essence of it, because we've got mind, we've got body. What enlivens that? Spirituality isn't about religion. Religion is a man-made construct, but spirituality is what enlivens that and connects them. We all are spiritual beings because we are energized. I mean, otherwise we would just be a mind and a body. Is that kind of hanging there? So the spirituality aspect for me is just all of that energy, all that enlivens us and the wisdom, 
because like Dr. Northrup says, this is the wisdom of menopause. This is the wisdom of the female body. And I think we're very fortunate to have these thresholds. They are as difficult as all get go. I would ask my son one time and said, you know, did I seem really crazy? He said, no, mom, you seemed really afraid. And we call things growing pains because it's painful. And to heal is painful. I mean, I've been yoga-ing since 2001. I'm a trauma-informed yoga instructor. And yes, you know, the yoga can bring us to the parasympathetic nervous system and calm us down. But my main thing was that it gave me access to stuff I had buried for so long and needed to get out. Real quick, how powerful that kind of thing is. Last year, I had to have emergency surgery at a twisted colon. And Saturday night, they're calling the surgeons and whatever. So, you know, I got to got to do this. So I'm in the hospital four days and whatnot. I came home, you know, yoga person. You know, I set up my chair. I taught chair yoga so I could do I could do the chair yoga. This is good. So I'm just doing these hand things and totally not in my control. I started to howl, to to wail, to moan. These sounds started coming out of me that I could not stop if I wanted to. I was very aware. I was like, this is the trauma. This is my body trying to get rid of that fear from from that surgery. But this went on for a good few minutes. And I felt so grateful that I had that practice, that mind-body practice to get rid of that. You know, it's it's like vomit. You know, I have a poem with that. And it's like vomit. You, You need to get it out. And we live in a culture that we're so hold that in, you know, don't let that out. And I I have to think about Carol Carol Burnett uh, comedy thing that she did, but about keening in the Irish culture. And when they lose someone, they will moan, wail, you know, cry, scream. That's, that's good for us, you know, and that's all I have to say. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that piece in the the spiritual emergence piece and also the mind body practice. You know, I'm a holotropic breathwork facilitator. I've been doing that for almost a decade. And that is the reason why, because I had the same exact instinct as a trauma survivor. Like I have to get this out of me and we don't have any spaces in our society where we're allowed to just freaking scream, like to really just scream. And so for me, that is my, my number one self-care practice personally. And the reason why I teach it to other trauma survivors is like, we need to just yell. sometimes. I love it. And I, I also love what you mentioned about a midlife healing instead of a midlife crisis. You know, so my mom was diagnosed with PPMD. And I think in my younger years, I also likely would have been diagnosed with that too. That's very problematic diagnosis. We can talk about that as well. But I bring that in to say, you know, eventually I realized that instead of pathologizing myself during my menstrual cycle, those moments as distressing and terrifying as they may have been are moments where, like you said, you get to see at the bottom of the lake. And to some extent, and I don't mean to be at all Pollyanna about this, but to some extent, what a gift, right? Like you you get to see all of that. And you get to deal with that. And we get to deal with that, you know, in younger years, like every month. (laughs) And then you get a huge opportunity, sounds like, to deal with that in perimenopause and menopause. So yeah, thank you for bringing that in. 
Marie, I'd love to hear a bit from you. All right. So, so glad to be here and hearing everyone's stories. So, you know, I come to this topic, you know, not as someone with lived experience of, you know, either menopause or psychosis, but I'm a psychologist. I work in the public mental health system and also in private practice. And um, before I was a psychologist, I studied women, gender, and sexuality. And I decided to become a psych- psychologist because I was very interested in mental health activism. I was very involved in like the hearing voices movement in New York City. And I always also combined it with this sort of like gender studies background and always kind of looking at things through that through, through that lens, through that piece. So I kind of like had those two things side by side. And I, you know, when I started working in, in the mental health system, I noticed that there were a lot of women who were experiencing their first episode of psychosis that were in the midlife range. And that every time this would happen, people would say, oh, this is so strange. Like, this is so unusual. You know, why is it that at 45 years old, this person is now um, experiencing this? And then I read that it's actually very common. People just don't realize, just don't know this information that, you know, experiences called psychosis usually happen when when someone's like an emerging adult, right? So I was curious about that and also just the idea of, you know, what Leah was talking about, that there's so much support around that time now, you know, comprehensive wraparound services where you're given, you know, a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, a therapist, educational supports, and people are really kind of build this kind of support system around you, help you build that support system, peer support, right? Big one. But then when this is experienced by people who are you know, 45 or around there, there isn't that type of support. And this is problematic for many reasons, but there's also just so much going on in people's lives during that time period, you know, coping with aging parents, things happening in the workforce, you know, the glass ceiling is going to like start around that time, things happening with with children. And so I was kind of seeing this a lot in just my my clinical work. And I was looking at it from a lot of different things, how no one is talking about this and happening all the time. And there's no support there. Even traditional psychiatry, right? There's just nothing really there. And then when it comes to psychosis more broadly, I like to think about this in many multifaceted ways. And that and the element of spirituality. And so people are not even talking about that because they're they're not even talking about mainstream models. So it's like, I mean, there's a few things that that also have been on my mind. One is there's this concept of reproductive identity that is developed by this psychologist named Orly Ethan, who I used to be in her lab at Columbia. She had a, she might still have this, but she had the motherhood lab where she explored all aspects of the motherhood transition and really thought about motherhood as a developmental stage in life. And she talks about this concept of reproductive identity as another piece of people's identity. So similar to your race, your ethnicity, your gender, these things. Also just what is your relationship to reproduction? Do you have children? Do you not have children? Do you want children but can't have children? Did you have children by reproductive assistance? All of these questions. So there's that piece, which I think is a very interesting and forgotten piece when it comes to psychology and thinking about like the factors of identity and how they interact with what someone is experiencing. And then the other thing that I was really interested in is also just, you know, a lot of times when we talk about psych, 
psychosis, you know, trauma is a big piece, but there's also this piece in the literature that's really like social alienation that a lot of people that experience these extreme states are people who, for whatever reason, they don't fit into the flow of society as it is, right? People who have immigrated to another country or, or migrated to another country and feeling kind of separate. They don't quite feel from their home country. They don't quite feel in the culture that they're in. And so we do see, right, increased rates of extreme states, things that we call psychosis in people who have had that experience. And so this is also the experience of women oftentimes at midlife, right? That they often, there is this sense of social alienation, a sense of who am I in this world? You know, there is this kind of, almost like it's a foreclosure of identity that, that when you're a woman in this society, you really become intertwined with your capacity to reproduce. And this is given to you. And so it sort of operates all, you know, throughout life as attached to you. You don't even want it there, but it's like attached to you. And then all of a sudden something shifts at midlife. And now it's like, okay, where, where am I? What is the gap? You know, we see in popular culture, right? Images of women after a certain age have vanished. They're gone, you know? And so I was just kind of thinking about what we know about psychosis more broadly and social alienation. And then what we know about the experience of people who have, you know, the female reproductive organs in society and what that must be like. So kind of putting all of these together and just, you know, working with a lot of women who had these experiences and seeing a lot of commonalities about them, like questions about their, their place in the world, questions about their footing, like who, who am I? Like, what do I, what do I have? Like, what do I have in my hands to hold on to? You know, another common thing, you know, it's, it's interesting listening to both Leia and, and Linda's stories because there's a lot of commonalities. A lot of women who kind of have felt like, I know I should be having emotions, but I can't feel them. Like in this moment, I would be having an emotion and I know I should be feeling joy here or sadness here but it's not, it's not there, you know, like almost like a frozen sort of lake period, you know, and then it begins kind of to spin. So, yeah, so that was really what brought me to have an interest in this, you know, just the being a psychologist working the public mental health system with an activist background and just really thinking about, you know, what are we missing from this experience and what should, should we be talking about? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you brought in that piece around social isolation because I was a bit familiar with that aspect of the research in psychosis too, that it's so much more common to have that experience or manifestation with that particular kind of trauma, the trauma of social isolation, not feeling kind of your place or a common experience for immigrants, refugees. Refugees. And just bringing that into this space, the kind of temporal space of being at a certain time in life and that social isolation kind of emerging because of society and how we deal with, you know, elders. I really wanted to ask, you know, we have this archetype and I see some people redefining this archetype for themselves of the elder, the crone. I'm curious if, you know, now looking back, if you have maybe a different, perhaps more generative or creative relationship with this archetype for yourself or kind of what your, what your vision is or hope, how we may be able to treat our elders in society differently. I can speak to that. You know, I think embodied within this archetype is women and older people because they remind us of our own mortality. And yet the sacredness of this time is that we are coming to terms with 
mortality, right? So, so Linda spoke about, you know, feeling like she was going to die and that I didn't mention this earlier, but that was very, very much a feature of my own experience. I actually never imagined myself getting old. Um, My mother, who's also a psychiatric survivor, died at the age of 46. And so another facet of my experience was that I had this terror that I was also going to die at 46. And at the same time, I was extremely suicidal through a lot of the menopausal transition. And so it was this constant grappling with death, like this longing for death and this fear of death. And what I knew from, you know, my years of working and thinking about suicide and listening to suicide attempt survivors and people who experience suicidal intensity is that very often it's not necessarily that someone literally you know, wants to die, that literally wants death. But it's a death of a way of life. It's a death of a way of being that no longer serves them. And I think that is, in a way, what that archetype in its full expression can express, right? Is that I'm sort of smashing the patriarchy right now, (laughs) you know, as as I transition to this stage of life. Like, many people talk about the rage, that's experienced during the menopausal transition, right? And that's also something that's familiar to people on a monthly basis, like that rage, that suicidal intensity that comes up month after month, right? But it's sort of this like explosion of that writ large. And I had always, you know, I raged against authority. I raged against the machine. I never had any problem doing that. But in other areas of my life, I was very compliant, very, you know, seeking to please, like the fawn response of trauma was one that I was very familiar with, like just, you know, really leaning into that, that way of being that sacrifice myself for the happiness of others, which of course is how all people socialized as women are kind of encouraged to be. But then in, in menopause, there was just like this rage, the sacred rage that like bubbled up from the cauldron of my being. And in some ways it was extremely, extremely powerful. I think it's still extremely powerful. I honor rage as such an important emotion. We've been talking about emotions and it was destructive. You know, it got me fired from a job because I couldn't stop raging at my coworkers, you know, and I didn't want to be that way with them, but I literally couldn't control it. It was fire hosing out of me. So I think what I love about transitioning, you know, into what is known as elderhood is there's just less of giving a fuck and really stepping into, into who we truly are. You know, and I think society is really, really threatened by by women, by people of any age who who go against the conditioning, who go against that that go along, get along, just take it and take it and take it and never speak up about it expectation that's placed on us. And so I think, yeah, I think menopause is a real threat to the patriarchy if we really allow ourselves to lean into it. And so that's what I would say about this this phase of life. Heck yes. I love that script flipped. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm fully uh, on the other side. I'm, I'm 65 years old last Monday, you know, full, full on into Medicare. It's interesting how the culture has that 
when I turned 40, 50, 60, none of that meant anything to me. You turn 65, they go, now you have to have Medicare. They sent me a card and mail, you know, they, and I, I did hear that when I go for my physicals now, they will ask me about my end of life plans. They, they say five words to you, then leave for 20 minutes, come back to see if you can remember the words. And yeah, you know, I find myself even doing that. Like if I don't remember something, I go, oh no. And I start drawing. There's a thing where you draw a clock where it's 10 to 11. I start drawing clocks. So, you know, you do start thinking about that. I am fully into the whole being this age, you know, you could see my hair. It's interesting. I used to color my hair. I worked for Outward Bound and everyone had auburn hair. So I would use that washout auburn hair stuff. And as soon as it started going gray, I went, oh, that's a color. I'm going to leave that alone. So yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think we have a lot of power coming up. I mean, what is it now with women in menopause, a billion women, uh, a million every year coming into perimenopause. So I, I think there. And I'll go into my my spirituality degree that I have. There's some philosophers in women's spirituality that feel that this shift that we had into the patriarchy was an intentional shift that the feminine withdraws to allow for the development of the left-sided brain and all of this stuff, you know, our technology stuff. And that's not gender, you know, that's just energy. So the feminine recedes and says, let's have all of this going on. And now it's time for reemergence of the feminine and not to outdo the masculine balance. You know, it's all about balance. We don't want to get rid of the masculine. We don't want to get rid of the feminine. You know, we have to have that kind of balance. And, and I do think too, that women are able to come more into that sense of balance with their menopause and, and entering cronehood because we, you, I think we develop our stronger anima and animus type of thing. And I think we develop that stronger masculine essence, again, energy, not gender. So I think we're, we, we come into a more balanced sense of that. And I think that's intended because I do think the culture, when we see what's going on with gender identity, I do wonder if it's a letting go, a dissolving of the duality. We're in such light, dark, masculine, feminine, good, bad. There is such a strong duality going on and trying not to be so polar excluded of each other. So speaking about kind of melting some of these dualities, a strong theme that I hear in, in everyone's share is, is kind of the, the mind-body aspect. And Leah, I heard you talk about this too, about, you know, we can't really throw the biology piece out. And I'm curious if we can speak to kind of the medicalization of, you know, PMS, PPMD, the pharmaceutical industry's role in that, um, especially in menopause and hormonal changes. And I'm mostly curious how each of you have kind of come to understand nuance within this, that there are so many issues with the medicalization of this process. And also we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And we do kind of have to care for our bodies and our health in, in some way. Well, I think the mind-body aspect, I, I always try to talk about it as complementary, not alternative. Like I said, I went into the hospital and I was always the vitamin gal and you know, I wasn't going to take any medications when I was out of the hospital. I wouldn't even go on the pill. I had a breast tumor when I was 23, another one when I was 30, and then calcification things. So for, my, for me to step into that hormone circle was, I was desperate. 
I, I was I was very, very desperate. And I it was something I wasn't going to be able to stay on for very long. So I think for me, these mind-body practices, the journaling, the dream work, the yoga, the qigong, the continuum, that I think they're very important to offer to folks who are having mental health issues because if we just keep giving them medication after medication that isn't working, then all we're handing them is hopelessness because they're saying, you know, I'm coming back here for the 15th time and you're changing this medication again. If we also, like I said, I, I came out, Remeron, Zoloft, Klonopin, it, I, I needed to take that. The doctor took me off of stuff very quickly. But if we also give them these mind-body tools, they are tools, it empowers them to say, okay, I'm not just going to be uh, with these pills. I can do these things. I have these tools to take out. And as Jasmine well knows, the breath can connect us to that. You know, we can't go, I have so many hard things still. You know, I wish I could change that, but I can sit, I can breathe. So I think it's so important. And to get us to a point where we are, we're able to say, okay, it's not always going to be like this. That was a huge thing for me because there were days, and still I have those days because I'm still healing my trauma, but in the perimenopause thing, there were days it was not manageable. It was not. I'm still going under. I was on the medication. I was on the hormones. The trauma was still coming up, but I could say tomorrow could be different. And that's such a small, simple thing. But to be able to say tomorrow could be different and huge thing for me, too, was to be able when we grow up in traumatic households, we're not able to access our own emotions. So those are frozen in us. And for me to come out of the hospital and to be able to say I am afraid was huge. It was hugely healing. And to say it out loud because you're growing up and there's trauma going on and you are, you need to tell someone you're afraid. And as soon as I would say that, the fear would dissipate. The fear would dissipate. Mm -hmm. Thanks for sharing that experience. Leah um, or Marie? I, yeah. I mean, just one thing I was thinking about when you were kind of asking this question is like that a lot of times, like we sort of like think about questions of hormones and the body as like existing in this like isolation that we're like this encapsulated, you know, being and that it's the hormones that are giving rise to this thing. And, you know, I think it's much more complex than that. I think that hormones are very much influenced by everything, like what we eat, how we understand them, what are the cultural narratives around, you know, hormones. There's been studies that the experiences of PMS actually vary widely all across the world, that this isn't just not every single woman in every single country experiences the anger, the even the physical things of PMS are not the same. And so I think that there is this very important thing to consider about the way that we understand hormones and, and how, I mean, this may sound a little bit out there, but really, and can that actually impact hormones themselves and the way that they function, right? Like, is there some sort of interaction that goes on between the mind, the world and the body in that way that we're not fully appreciating? I really appreciate that so much, Marie. And yeah, you really made me think when you said that as someone who has experienced enormous relief on estradiol, enormous, and I'm not claiming that that's the sole cause of my relief in, it, in any way, but uh, yeah, the medicalization piece 
is so key. And we're medicalized at every stage of our lives. But you do see this real overemphasis on perimenopause. Just for the very fact that we call the experiences so often symptoms, we talk about treating perimenopause as if it were a disease. Uh, We don't talk about treating puberty or treat, I mean, maybe if someone has an illness in pregnancy, sure, but we talk about treating perimenopause. So just noticing first this deeply, deeply medicalized language that is even used to discuss it, which is why I choose to kind of talk about these as experiences rather than symptoms. And there's also, you know, the phenomenon, and I didn't even get into this when I was kind of talking about my lived experience, but of trying to find help of trying to find relief and encountering the patriarchal white supremacist medical system because, right, there are so few supports, as Marie mentioned, that tend to are psychosocial or that, you know, or spirituality specifically for the menopausal person. And I'm someone who has been critical of the medical establishment, who's extremely skeptical of psychiatry, And I was so desperate that I went to a psychiatrist for the first time in like 30 years. And this was a quote unquote reproductive psychiatrist who I thought would work with me holistically, who was uh, recommended by my therapist. And she basically subjected me to what is called diagnostic overshadowing. So when somebody experiences an intensification of emotional or mental health stuff during perimenopause and menopause, or new things for the first time, like for me, I first time I'd ever had altered states. It's always, you know, reduced to the medical, to the psychiatric. And so, you know, she really wanted to put me on a mood stabilizer. And I was like, hey, doc, how about the, the hormonal stuff? You're a reproductive psychiatrist. Like, what about that piece of it? And she said, oh, we have to deal with you know, the mental health stuff first before we can address anything else. Rather than looking at me as a full body, she looked at me as, you know, a neck up kind of being. Well, you know, we we, we know that that's, that's absolutely failing. That approach is failing menopausal people. We also know that since the Women's Health Initiative study, which in, tw- it was 20 years ago, it kind of raised this huge scare that hormones would make everyone get cancer and hormones were quickly, you know, essentially almost removed from the options for menopausal people. National Institutes of Health talked about how suicide rates skyrocketed in midlife people and antidepressant use skyrocketed in midlife perimenopausal menopausal people at that that really maps exactly to that removal of hormone replacement therapy as an option. And I think it's really important to look at this. Um, the Cambridge Medical Journal just recently came out with a, a meta-analysis that looked at, at the, pro- the problem with this. And in the sense that, you know, antidepressants alone, right, even if they're given for a short time, they work less well on people during the menopausal transition without some kind of, you know, um, concurrent hormonal support. So, so people's whole bodies are not being served, right? Both in the medical establishment and in society at large. And you wonder why there's such high, high rates of suicide during the, I think it's 45 to 54 range, right? It's like the confluence of all of these pressures and all these factors and not being taken seriously by the medical system. And myself, as someone who 
really, you know, has, as I said, has always been skeptical of the medical system, is an advocate, a lifelong advocate. But dealing with all of those experiences, it took me almost four years to access hormonal support. And it was through an app because none of my providers would give it to me. Right. And that's like a feminist issue as well. Like, of course, we shouldn't reduce women and menopausal people to hormonal beings, like to surgically treat with hormones. But at the same time, this is something I'm wanting and I'm asking for. I want to try it. I want to see if it will help so that I can function and raise my kid, you know? And as soon as I got on the estradiol, it was like a switch flipped. And maybe it's the placebo effect. Maybe it was my belief that they would work. I don't know. But I was able to think again. I was able to talk and speak and finish a sentence in my brain again. I was not struggling daily with suicidal intensity. So that 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 made made it almost impossible to live and be in the world. It was absolutely extraordinary within you know just a few weeks and i'm not claiming at all that hormones are a magic bullet and that everybody should take them and you know it's the answer because i think that's also a narrative but to really sort of you know i had the the blessing of having access finally to hormones having access to peer support having the resources to be able to explore my options and i think it was the combination of all of those things that really helped so yeah i'm I'm absolutely against the medicalization of this experience. And I think it's it's so critical for us to, to shift that narrative and to really um, talk about this as very much a mind-body-spirit phenomenon. Yes. Thank you for bringing that piece in. You know, I can't tell you how many times I have clients come to me and say, like, do, do you think this is... Do, is am I crazy or is this my hormones? <laughs> you know, like, as if there's like some binary or some duality or, you know, and, and like, obviously we question what the heck crazy even means and within our society, but I think it's really common because we grow up with the narrative of it's, it's so deeply embedded in our language. Oh, I'm just being hormonal. Oh, oh, you're just hormonal as that being kind of where that stops. But to your point, Marie, as well, it's like, okay, what impacts our hormones? so many different things. And I'm a huge proponent proponent of, you know, the mind, body, spirit stuff, mostly because I have multiple chronic illnesses that have deeply intertwined with mental health concerns for me. And in my earlier years, birth control, first of all, made me suicidal. And as soon as I came off of birth control or that, you know, specific type of birth control that completely went away, thankfully. And also my, I have an autoimmune disease and there's a lot of links between, like you said, Leah, early childhood trauma, developmental trauma and autoimmunity. And that's certainly the case in my story. And once I discovered I had an autoimmune disease, fixed my diet in support of that, I have celiac, so I had to go gluten-free. Once I did that, my PMS symptoms, I mean, just like absolutely not completely eliminated. You know, I still actually really like and honor the fact that I have an opportunity every month still to kind of move through some things and uh, process different elements of trauma that I hadn't before, but in such a different way and so much of an easier way um, because I tackled that piece. And so that's not to say again, that there's any kind of magic bullet or that, you know, having a specific diet is going to make everything better or things like that, but they're so deeply intertwined. 
It also made me think, Jasmine, as you were talking, just the idea that when someone says, you know, I'm being hormonal or that person's hormonal or having PMS, there's this element of, so it doesn't mean anything, right? And I think what everyone's kind of talking about, and also when I work with my clients, I try to say this as much as possible that no, you're experiencing something that's important to release. This is the time that you now have greater access to all of those things that you've been pushing down. So I, I think, yeah, that's kind of like the part of the hormonal narrative story that needs to change is this idea or crisis in general, right? Mental health in general, that it's these things are actually like opportunities for, you know, personal, societal, familial growth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, to wrap up a bit, is there anything else that you all would just really like people to know about this particular topic? Things that haven't been said yet that you kind of want to want to leave us off with? Yeah. One thing I would want to talk about is that, yeah, there's the medicalization on one side, you know, and then there's this menopause industry that has kind of sprung up with all of these celebrity menopreneurs, you know, selling us products, right? We are seen as this like really profitable you know, market, right? I think Linda spoke to the fact that there's going to be like a billion menopausal people I've heard like by 2025 or something like that. And so kind of looking at this sort of intersection too with capitalism and pushing that like, oh, buy this thing and this will fix your menopause, right? Like, you know, put this cream on your badge and everything's going to be fine. You know, <laughs> like here's a, a something for your face so that you still continue to look attractive to the patriarchy. Right. And I think that it's so tempting for a lot of folks to buy into not just the medicalization, but this mass marketing to us that something is wrong with us. And this overpriced product is going to fix it, you know? So I've, <laughs> I've felt really conflicted because yes, more people are talking about menopause these days. And that's really huge and really important because as Linda said, people have not even, women and people experiencing it haven't even been talking about it, but it is in this frame often less of trying to educate and more of trying to sell us something. And so I've been a part of conversations on Reddit and, you know, Facebook and other places where we're really interrogating these, you know, the the mass marketing to us and rejecting that and resisting that because it's just another way to sort of cut us off from the spiritual uh, dimension, you know, right? Or the the psychosocial or, or kind of exploring the impacts of trauma on our life. And, and just getting us to consume instead. So I would really, you know, encourage your listeners to also sort of um, question those narratives and the sort of capitalism aspect of this. And, and that really this is, it's for me, it's been both an inside job and one that is explored in connection with others, which is tremendously healing, right? Peer support that's happening organically among menopausal people. And I'll say just one other thing for me, what also has been really helpful and kind of getting out of this, I got to fix it mentality is connecting with nature and sounds so sort of trite, (laughs) but we haven't talked about it yet, but, but yeah, during some of the worst times of my crisis, I started spending a ton of time outdoors, you know, not having a job gave me the ability to do that. 
And it really did help to sort of reconnect me with long suppressed, you know, the wildness of myself and kind of tapping into like, yeah, just this aspects that I hadn't explored forever, getting away from screens, getting away from consuming and just being. Oh, yes. Thank you for that. Divest from anything that makes you believe that you have to buy something to fix yourself. Absolutely. Yes. And a huge part of that is going back to nature. We have so much of what we need already here and we're not tending to it or caring for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think are there, there are, I mean, in my ex- exploring different, you know, Facebook groups, whatever, there are women who just want to do that quick fix. And they, you know, when to talk about spirituality and walking through the fire of healing, that that's our culture. You know, when I started the thing, you know, when I was, uh, I was taking this black co-host, you know, this, whatever, just return me to my sane self. And so, of course, I mean, it depends on your level of because I talk to women who are like, oh, I had a couple of night sweats, you know, so they're not like desperately pulling stuff off the shelf. I was desperately pulling stuff off the shelf. And I, of course, try the diet things. I still have uh, immune, not autoimmune, but immune things with my diet and stuff is very, very difficult. So it's not like, you know, there's actually a book out there, the healthier I ate, the sicker I got. So, you know, yeah, I tried to eat all the healthy foods and stuff. That wasn't going to help me. This wasn't going to help me. I And I took all those things off the shelf. That wasn't going to help me. And I really do think my mind, body, spirit had a, another plan. And they, it was just telling me, you're, you're just going to walk through the fire. You, this is, this is your only way out. Some people will take the hormones like Leia can take the hormones and everything's good. Some people can take the Zoloft and everything's good and they they'll take it for 30 years. I think each of us have a different path. I think all of our perimenopausal experiences are as unique as our fingerprints. So I think there is actually an intended path in my spiritual beliefs. I think there's an intended path. Everyone is individual. Women want a quick fix, just get on with their lives. If that works, God speed you, man. For me, it was like, there is only one way out of this and you're going to do the work and you're going to cry and fall on the floor. So that's what I did. And Mm -hmm. I, 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 I always call the, um, symptoms of menopause challenges because a symptom is often a disease thing. A challenge is a call to special effort. And I feel that all of the symptomology that I had was calling me to say, what aspect of your trauma is this trying to tell you? What aspect of your trauma is that trying to tell you? So for me, they were all challenges calling me to make an effort to do the work of my healing. Because it's not fun. So, you know, if people can can take this or take the co-host or whatever that works, go girlfriend, you know, but it, it isn't going to work for me. Yeah. I mean, I feel like my final contribution is really similar to what everyone else is saying. I think all of this really relates to this idea of hermeneutical justice, right? The ability for one to define their own experience, particularly someone who is positioned in, you know, without a lot of social capital to be able to define their experience. And I think that that particularly pains to people who are women or who have female reproductive organs. I think that particularly applies to people who are old, right? Older in society, our elders. 
um, with ageism. And it particularly uh, also applies to people who experience extreme states. Um, so for all of these experiences, I think that people really um, lose the capacity to be able to rec- to define what happened to them in the way that is going to feel the most meaningful. So my contribution is really just that. You get to decide, right, for yourself what these experiences mean to you and how you want to go through them, right? What, what tools do you want to use in order to navigate the experience? And what is the personal meaning that it, that it brings to you? And I think, you know, ultimately, I think that that's kind of sort of like the most, the most feminist approach you could have really is that you and and just you have that that ultimate authority. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for I just want that. to quickly say thank you to all of you folks. I went through my thing it was 2005 there was very little available at that time so I was really on my own. So I just want to thank all of you guys for the work that you're doing to get this information out there and to help women to have other options and alternatives and to know that this is a holistic experience and that there is community out there. There there are other women to talk to and help you through it. So thank you to each and every one of you. I can't tell you if I had something like this, I could listen to back in 2005. Oh, yay. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank all of you. This was such a beautiful discussion. And I think it's going to be so, so helpful and useful for so many people. I will have the links to where folks can find each of you as well. And thank you so much for being on this podcast episode. Thank you. Thank Thank you so so much, Jasmine. If you found this podcast useful and want more in-depth research practices and tools, I have a subscription to access all bonus content here on Spotify for a few dollars per month. I produce this podcast all by myself, and that is the best way to show your support and help me keep it running and available to everyone. It would also mean so, so much to me if you left a rating or a review to get this in front of more people. I also have a parting gift for you, a 15-minute guided holotropic breathwork practice for trauma healing. It's gentle, short, and super effective, by far my favorite practice that I still do on my own every single week. The link is in the description below. Thank you so, so much for being here, and I'll see you next time.